Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Melanie Bell about movie workers, the women who made British cinema. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Dave. Uh, this is a, a fantastic book. Uh, it's incredibly interesting. Um, and actually, uh, as we might do right at the, the very end of our conversation, um, it speaks to issues that are right kind of with us um, in, in the, the movie and the cinema industry today. But it is, you know, a, a kind of history. Um, it does tell um, the, the kind of story of, of, of British cinema in, in lots of different ways. And, and I was struck, and, and maybe we'll start with this. I was struck by the title, this term movie workers, because um, obviously, you know, it, the book isn't called like directors or producers or sound engineers or whatever. So, so what does this, this kind of title mean? What are or maybe who are movie workers? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I mean, movie workers, it's, it's, a, it's a great term, isn't it? And it was developed by a sociologist, Leo Rosten, in the 1940s, who was doing a survey of um, the Hollywood film industry. And for Rosten, he said the movie workforce is divided into three distinct tiers. He said you've got the movie elite, which are kind of stars and directors, the movie uh, makers, which are the kind of, you know, middle layer of um, production workforce, and then the movie workers. And these are the rank and file of the production workforce. So these are the continuity girls, the props men, the production secretaries, the costume assistants that really make up the bulk of the people who make our films. And if we look at the history of film production through a gendered lens, we can see that women are disproportionately clustered in these rank and file jobs. And okay, so that's that's fair enough. But so why does this matter? Well, these are roles that the women took that have been dismissed by the industry and also, I have to say, by academic scholarship. And they've been dismissed as, well, these are low-skilled, they're non-creative relative to, let's say, directors and scriptwriters. And it's for this reason that they have been largely absent from film history. So there's the kind of recognition that they contributed to film production, but that that really that contribution is fairly kind of low-skilled. 
And and I really kind of wanted to kind of think through that and challenge that and think for the movie workers study, you know, to set about investigating, well, what are these roles? You know, what does a production secretary do? Is the role as low skill as we've been led to believe? And really thinking from that about how we might film history through a gendered lens and kind of recuperate and reconceptualize this work. And that's that's what the book is about, really. It's about kind of reconceptualizing this as work and as creative labor, the work of movie workers. I mean, the, the obvious question that that prompts is, is, is a kind of how question, you know, um, as you mentioned, um, both, I guess, the kind of the work and the history has been um, you know, forgotten, marginalised, you know, in some ways ignored. So how did you go about researching it? And I guess in, in particular, the the sort of other story in the book is the story of, of, of film unions, actually, um, and, and particularly the kind of importance and power of, uh, of union records um, to kind of tell forgotten history. So what was your sort of um, your methods and, and your approach? Yeah, I mean, I was I was faced with this, you know, really kind of obvious question is about where is women's film labour documented? Where might it be documented? And it was it was because of the peculiarities or the particular structure of the British film industry. Um, I turned to trade union records. So the British film industry was a closed shop since about 1933. And what that meant was you had to be a member of the union to get work. And the way it was um, structured in uh, in Britain was that that cut across all roles, all grades. So directors, producers, writers, as well as continuity girls, props men and, um, uh, and costume assistants were all members of the same union. It was called in the 30s the AC. The Association of Cine Technicians. So I was fortunate to be able to work with the union, and um, they had a complete run of trade union membership applications, which started from 1933 and went through to the 1990s. And these applications recorded information about age, about gender, about role, about employer and about grade. And it really provided me with a, a kind of comprehensive data set, a form of evidence that could be put alongside trade and industry reports, oral history interviews, screen credits and other types of miscellany to begin this process of recuperation and rewriting. Um, Because it it was fantastic to be able to see many of them handwritten, women's handwriting saying, I was an assistant editor or I joined the union as a, as a you know, continuity girl or a production secretary. So it was concrete evidence of women in these roles at a particular point in history. And that was the kind of starting point um, from which the project began. The other starting point is, is a kind of a moment of major um changes and in in the film industry i mean it's funny to kind of say that because all the way through the book you could say that you know the the kind of backdrop is almost constant major changes um to the film industry and and one of the things the book does uh, really well is is try and sort of periodize but also you know think about what's going on with the union what's going on you know kind of more broadly uh with with british film and and i guess in, in some ways it's a sort of social history as well but at the start of the book you're kind of confronting um, I suppose, a very gendered set um, of, of jobs, and, and you've sort of alluded to this already. So 
when we're thinking about kind of film in, in, in the 30s, um, what I suppose is the kind of the gendered division of labour in the British film industry? Yeah, I mean, the, in terms of the gendered division of labour, I mean, it, 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 it does change and it does evolve. So you do have women as... Um, you have women working in animation, um, doing um, cell painting. You have women working as continuity girls and production secretaries. So you have a whole raft of kind of secretarial type roles that women are working in. You have women working as script writers, assistant script writers. Um, you have, so they're working in the studios doing that. Women worked in costume and wardrobe, although not as many as they did in the 50s and 60s. That was still a kind of mixed role, I guess, in terms of um, gender composition. Um, so there's 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 um, a sense of, you know, women beginning to kind of cluster in certain areas. And some of this is to do with the industry professionalising um, and new technologies coming on board, not least, you know, sound, and um, the desire to, uh, if if there's going to be some attempt to, let's say, compete with America, well, do we need do we need casting agents? Do we need um, more robust publicity? Do we need more fancy costumes? You know, and more a greater costume budget. So as the industry is changing, so the the workforce is kind of changing and responding to it. And, and 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 some of those jobs then become increasingly gendered, continuity being one, production secretary being another, costume to an extent becomes to be dominated by women at this point in time. One of the things you do quite quite early in the book is um, try and sort of illustrate um, this gendered division of labour uh, by looking at an archive of, I think it's Picture Goer magazine, um, which I guess was was a sort of um, I don't know whether you'd call it a sort of you know public magazine or a magazine for cinema enthusiasts or or something like that. Everyone is a cinema of... enthusiast. Sorry, yeah. That's in. No, no, go on, go on. Well, no, just everybody in the. I mean, this this is the age of mass cinema going, isn't it? In the nineteen thirties, so yeah, Picture Girl was a hugely popular fan magazine. Um, you know, this is the this is the era where everybody goes to the pictures. You know, it's the leisure activity of the nineteen thirties, um, and so for every one that was sold, they were probably read by four or five or you know six people. So there's, you know, the the um, the, the reach that they had as a popular leisure pursuit is phenomenal. And I guess they have a role in kind of shaping what people reading it, but also, you know, kind of more, more broadly, as you say, society thinks are women's jobs in cinema. And, and I was fascinated by two things. One is how are women represented um, in Picture Girl magazine and what kind of jobs are they seen to be doing? But also kind of like how are they not represented, you know, whether it's in terms of particular kinds of language used or, or whether they just kind of don't, don't figure at all as compared with men. Yeah, I mean, in terms of representation, it's 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 always they have to do this kind of double edged sword because, yes, you're presenting women as as 
workers, but then women aren't really supposed to work and they're supposed to be it's supposed to be kind of secondary to their primary role as wives and mothers. So a lot of the labor that women do is is on the one hand it is featured, but it's kind of reframed as an extension of their natural roles. So you know if they are working in some sort of kind of production secretary role, it's about taking care of people or it's about facilitating other people to succeed rather than their own you know career ambitions. Um, so you, you get a lot of kind of representation, uh, which is framed through a particularly um, gendered lens. So that's the first thing I would I would say. The other thing that we do see is that we see on whilst we've got women increasingly moving into costume and costume design being very important for the film industry in the 1930s, there seems to be a significant absence of that in picture-goer. So picture-goer does talk about costume, but it tends to be American films and American costume makers that they profile rather than examples of British women and British films that they profile in this particular area of expertise. So there's kind of an interesting kind of presence and absence, I think, around women in the film industry in the 1930s. I mean, the, the big kind of cliche that, that the book grapples with um, as, it, as it moves on in time in, into the 40s and the kind of coming of, of the Second World War and, and slightly after is this idea of, um, you know, kind of women moving into the workforce in huge numbers and doing jobs that have traditionally been kind of associated uh, with, with, with men's roles. And you sort of seek to complicate that quite a bit. I, I was really struck by um, women being uh, directors, but having very particular kind of genre um, constraints in terms of the, the jobs they were doing. And directing documentaries uh, stood out to me. And, and, and I'm kind of interested in, in what the impact of the Second World War was. And, and I guess whether there were these kind of, you know, freedoms and opportunities, but also these kind of constraints for, for women in film. Yeah, I mean, I think that the freedoms and opportunities were definitely there because there was a need for labour. Um, so there's definitely a case that opportunities extended for women and that women could progress more quickly through the ranks. Um, so the range of trades opened up uh, for women. So women work as animators, they work as model makers. We see them in film uh, libraries. We see them as draftswomen in art departments. We see them as re- readers and researchers in the scenario departments. And we also increasingly see them uh, working as directors or assistant directors. And of course, this term assistant is incredibly useful because it means you can basically pay somebody less, but often they are acting up for the for the person who's ostensibly in charge. And so uh, so that's one thing is, is this kind of increasing range of roles in which women can take. And you're absolutely right that, you know, the point about the types of films or the genres that we find women in. Well, it's not feature films, you know, it's not, you know, the big budget, um, all kind of all singing, all dancing productions that are being made. It tends to be in documentary, it tends to be in shorts, uh, short film production. And this is a huge growth area in the Second World War. Uh, the, you know, the, the country needs training films, it needs documentaries, it needs instructional films. So there's a lot of work that goes on in this area and a lot of kind of demand for labour and it's an area in which women um, um, do prosper so they move into assistant um, um, 
directing, they get co-directing credits, some of them get solo directing credits, some of them start work as editors and then move from editors into directing. So documentary shorts becomes a really kind of big area for women um, in the in the Second World War. You mentioned um, animation in the Second World War as well and, and kind of slightly before as well. I'm, I'm fascinated by the story of animation and, and it kind of carries over into the 1950s because I suppose what we might have in kind of popular discourse are these, you know, sort of images of particularly American people like Disney, you know, and, and the kind of the sense of animation uh, possibly being associated with these kind of great men of, of cinema history. But actually in, in some ways it's a, a slightly kind of um, less prestigious genre in, in the British film industry. And, and this is intertwined with, women's ability to kind of get work in it. But at the same time, women were able to be kind of, you know, really successful. And I wonder what, what the story of animation is, you know, both um, kind of after the war and into the 50s, but but also, I suppose, more generally, its place in, in British, in a gendered British history of cinema. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely does have that place in, in what is, as you say, this gendered history. I mean, it's a, it's a massive employment area for women. You know, they are the backbone to the to the animation industry um, in Britain. I mean, it's producing, it's not, it's not really producing features in the way that Disney is, but it's producing lots of, um, um, you know, again, training films, it's doing lots of cartoons, lots of shorts. There's a lot of work um, in this industry. And women are clustered in what were called paint and trace um, jobs. So these are kind of junior positions um, in this kind of production hierarchy where they're responsible for basically copying the pencil drawings um, that the animators generate and they copy them onto the celluloid frames and then basically colour them in. Uh, so it's a job that's kind of associated with finishing rather than creating in the animation process. But And it's one of these jobs that's been dismissed as um, really low skill, it's very repetitive, there's no kind of creative agency or um, creative input into it. But of course, when you begin to talk uh, to women about what they did, when you begin to kind of look more in more detail about what this involved, you know, they had to work incredibly accurately, they had to work at speed, they had to understand colour uh, and, and control tone. They had to have really fantastic um, brush skills because this is all hand painting. This, obviously, this is way before digitisation. And they had to have really good hand-eye coordination. And, and it was very much, they saw it as a very artistic role and a role where they contributed to the artistic look uh, of the product that they were making. I'm fascinated beyond i guess kind of the, the broad stories of uh whether it's you know kind of genres or or particular jobs to, to think about sort of individual women's stories and and as we move into the 1960s we, we, we get a really interesting case study with, with joy cuff um and her story kind of tells us stuff um about changes um in um who kind of got particular roles so obviously things like makeup and special effects kind of slightly open up uh, to women beyond the jobs and things like animation publicity you know continuity that you've mentioned already but her story is also a kind of story of um kind of men as, as very much the kind of the bad guys um you know sort of blocking progress and to an extent actually the union being a bit of a problem as well. And, and I suppose I've got two questions. One is kind of what's Joy's story, but the other is this kind of critical moment of, I suppose, the kind of 
um, the limits of, of, of unions and, and particularly kind of men's actions to keep that shop closed. Yeah, so I mean, Joy Joy's just fantastic. She's such a uh, an important um, person in in British film history. I mean, she works in special effects, so she's a a matte artist. I guess uh, would would be the term that we would use to describe her career. I mean, special effects is a growth area in British cinema in the nineteen sixties. You know, it's making things like Thunderbirds and Stingray, um, and there's a whole kind of growth in special effects expertise um, in the country. Uh, it goes on into Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey which Joy um, Cuff worked on she had worked on um, Thunderbirds previously and she along with many other women were art school trained so they came into the industry doing puppet making, they came in uh, doing costume and hair design for the puppets, um, she worked as a matte artist so she's um, you know this is about kind of painting on, on glass and making kind of backgrounds in different kind of aesthetic styles you know Impressionistic or fantastical. So she's got this kind of huge range of um, skills. And she moves from small studios where programs like Thunderbirds and Stingray were made into bigger studios for 2001. And this is a real kind of, um, well, a shock to the, to the um, system for her because she confronts quite you know difficult and challenging sexual politics so she's she's subjected to constant banter um by she's one of the very few women who work on set um she's you know subjected to constant banter she is subjected to sexual harassment and she does have to deal with slurs which are um which are kind of associated with sexuality. So there's always this kind of presumption that as a young single woman in the 1960s, she's somehow sexually promiscuous. Um, so there's a lot of kind of regulating behaviour and regulating women's behaviour um, in relation to um, in relation to women uh, on set. So and she she ends up um, or she ends up she's put in a very kind of difficult situation where she's being harassed by a union official. And so in order to kind of complain about that, this I think is very illustrative because it, it exemplifies the difficulty of complaining when the person you're complaining about is the person in power, you know, and the limitations of that, you know. And um, she credits, you know, Stanley Kubrick as being very supportive of her in her role. But the way around this um, that put forward for it is basically to team her up with another man so that she's not the only person um, on the set. So the, she, she is presented as the problem rather than the men who are actually sexually and, and you know, physically harassing her. So it does illustrate, yeah, absolutely, the kind of the the limitations and the methods that can be used to curtail women's labour underneath this kind of official rubric of labour representation. I mean, I, I think it's important to stress that the book is not telling a story of a sort of, um, you know, kind of compliant um, women's workforce that, you know, in the kind of 70s and, and 80s discovers feminism and, and suddenly things change. Actually, there's, you know, long histories of, of quite sort of activist and, and you know, sort of um, resisting um, and, and, and sort of demands for change from, from women right throughout um, the book's um, sort of case studies and 
oral history stories, but but there is a notable kind of sea change by the time we're in the 70s and, and 80s. Um, and, and I guess, you know, on the one hand, that changes the impact of things like the feminist movement, but also, I guess, <laughs> maybe I've read it wrong, but almost the kind of um, an acceleration in, in, in men's sort of uh, kind of demands that they hoard, you know, kind of key roles and, and sort of carry on being in charge. So, so what was the sort of impact of feminism in the 70s and 80s, but also like how did kind of key players, um, key male players sort of push back? Yeah, I mean, it's you're absolutely right. So it would it would be wrong to set up this kind of opposition between pre and, and you know, post-feminism. Um, I mean, certainly there are lots of examples of women, um, you know, I can think of women in the 1950s who were union, repre- who were union representatives who would argue for not not equal pay but equal grading so a, a classic case in point was the production secretary being paid two-thirds of the salary of a first assistant director uh, and production secretaries arguing that these are actually equivalent roles in terms of responsibility and skill and so the production secretary's role needs to be regraded they weren't successful in that but they had a real sense of the value of their labor and what they contributed you know to, to film production and how to benchmark themselves against other members of of the crew so i mean that's one example from the from the 1950s of, of women you know definitely pushing back i mean in terms of the feminist movement of the 70s and the 1980s are really i mean obviously starts in the 70s and continues on i mean it definitely raised expectations and aspirations of women that some of them might work in camera and lighting and sound and these jobs that were basically majority male roles. So if you look at something like the National Film School, um, it opened its doors in the early 1970s and it did take in women uh, on the camera course. But when we talk to women in more detail, you know, they will talk about the uphill battle that they faced. So one of the women, Diane Tams, talked about all the tutors were male and they were absolutely convinced that women had no technical um, capabilities and were terrified that they'd drop the cameras. And so women are then trying to kind of learn in an environment that has absolutely no confidence in their ability to do the jobs and to learn. So it's a kind of indicative of the challenges, I guess, you know, that they face in that in that um, environment. And then I guess one of the things that comes out of, of that, you've got two things there. So, you know, once you've had access to training, which in itself is, is the challenge. So what do you do after that? Well, some women would try and carve out a career for themselves in mainstream production. Um, and uh, other graduates from the um, camera course, women like Sue Gibson, she came out with clear ambitions to work in cinematography, but she then spends a number of years in, at the bottom rung of the um, uh, of the of the camera department, and she has to watch male contemporaries leapfrogging her and she's stuck in commercials and it takes much longer for her to move into feature production and one of the things she talks about very reluctantly is the difficulty that you can't complain or challenge you can't rise to the bait because you want to fit in you're basically trying to fit into a system that's kind of skewed um, uh, against you and against your gender and I guess alongside that are alternatives like 
the workshop movement. So you can either try and go into mainstream production and, and fit in, or you look for alternatives which are outside the mainstream. And one of these, which was unique to Britain uh, in the 1980s, was the workshop movement. And this was an initiative that re- received funding from the British Film Institute, from what was the Greater London Council at the time, and for Channel 4. And it was an initiative to support collective cross-grade working and they make documentaries they make shorts they run educational events so it's not dissimilar to um in some ways the documentary movement of the 1930s it's intended as a kind of alternative to the mainstream and women do benefit under this system they do get access to training they do get access to jobs and and some women of, of that generation actively choose to work in that industry rather than the mainstream industry because the mainstream industry is seen as a really awkward fit. It doesn't work for many of them. So some of the women we interviewed, you know, said, what place is there in the mainstream industry for me as I'm a white working class gay woman? How on earth, you know, am I going to progress in the mainstream sector? I'm going to work in the workshop movement. And that's what many of them did. I mean, you, you mentioned the intersectional perspective there by bringing in um, class, sexuality and, and, and gender. Um, and again, you know, I think it's important to stress that right the way through the book, it's trying to think about intersections. Um, but towards the end of the book, it does bring in the kind of importance of thinking about things like race, sexuality and, and social class. And I guess why is that sort of important when you're telling the story um, the again the, the sort of gendered story of British cinema. I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the the intersectional approach. You know, if we look at things like the workshop movement, they were incredibly important for um, women and men of color. So, actually, just to kind of backtrack to documentary filmmaking of the nineteen thirties and the nineteen forties, the women who did succeed were white and middle class. It was a growth area for them, but not, you know, for all uh, um, um, people. So the workshops were important for men and women of colour. We have things like the Black Audio Film Collective, Sankofa. These were really significant in bringing the experiences and perspectives of black British and British Asians to the screen. And you've got directors in that sector, such as Maureen Blackwood, who were really um, um, outspoken and advocated for an intersectional approach. You know, we, you know, saying that we need to attend to how gender and sexuality and race structured um, opportunities. And she was very clear sighted about the limits of possibility as well. So Blackwood said in a racist film industry, for example, only a few black filmmakers would be permitted access to big budgets, and most of those were men. So you've got a real sense of how race intersects with gender. And she talks about, she's talking about um, uh, the American film industry here, but it applies to, to the UK as well. So Maureen Blackwood said stories about male African Uh, American soldiers were seen as more marketable than a drama about three generations of African-American women. So she was very on point about, you know, understanding this was a kind of lived experience of um, structural inequality. And I think faced with fewer opportunities, women like Maureen Blackwood opted, and I do put that in quotation marks, she opted to focus on media education. So she became a writing mentor for um, young screenwriters. And one of the things that comes out of that is, yeah, she's got a shorter 
filmography, so she has fewer screen credits than her male contemporaries. But I think what we need to do with that is to recognise the contribution of women's pedagogy in histories of film. You know, women like Blackwood don't disappear. They put their creative energies into other things, and we need to kind of bring those other things to the fore in our histories of film. I mean, that sense of writing the history of, of film in, in a kind of different way is, is, is really starkly illustrated in the epilogue to the book where um, you tell a story of, of um, you know, sort of hearing the resonances um, in 2017 of, of some of the um, stories and, and oral histories and, and records from the 1960s. And, and I guess to kind of coalesce that into a, a question, a sort of concluding question, it, it would be how does the story that the book has told still remain relevant and, and why is it still kind of important uh, where we are in, in, in 2022? Um, I mean, you know, the obvious things are around things like films, Me Too moments, um, which, you know, we still, as we see, you know, in sort of court cases and stuff like that, you know, of, of the film industry is still not kind of addressed this and, and got to grips with it. Um, but it, it's interesting to know, I guess, kind of where you think the book um, is, is kind of telling a story that still matters today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these stories and these histories are so relevant and so um, important to young women filmmakers of today. And I've done some um, workshops um, with with women filmmakers uh, who are, you know, re- relatively young, relatively junior, you know, in their early um, 20s. And I've played some of the um, extracts from the oral histories and talked about some of the stories and the anecdotes. And, you know, what's shocking, surprising, dis- disheartening is how relevant those anecdotes still are. So women, young women now would talk about, yes, you know, they, they are very conscious of being on display. They're very conscious of having to prove their technical credibility. It's not assumed that women will know what to do with kit in the way that it is with men. They also talk about how they're often introduced as there's an assumption that they are assistants in some ways, even though that's not actually in their job title. So it really brings alive how women now are still navigating this, you know, um, sphere that's incredibly, um, um, you know, patriarchal, racist. It's incredibly difficult, you know, to 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 work in, to operate in. And so, but there's also a kind of heartening story, I think, that kind of sits alongside that, is that a lot of the young women talked about how important it was to hear these um, histories. So they talked, you know, they thanked me for sharing them with them. You know, they said it kind of fostered a sense of belonging. They felt as though um, they were part of a kind of a wider history uh, and a wider community of women in film because this is because this history has been um, has been hidden women are constantly rediscovering it for the first time men are constantly rediscovering it for the first time you know and, and actually what the book does and what these stories do is connect the women of now with the women of, of the past and actually see them as a part of a kind of long history of women who made British cinema. I mean, that rediscovery and that sense of, of long history, is that something you're going to do more of in, in the future? I mean, it, it seems almost a bit kind of mean to be like, you've done this incredible, you know, wonderful book that has got um, so much kind of uh, archival and, 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 and sort of practical work that's gone into it. And now to say, so what's next? But uh, what is next? <laughs> what, um, what are you thinking of in terms of, I guess, kind of projects that may address 
contemporary issues um, or may address the history of film or indeed something completely different within media and communications. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've got, as you know, as we often have, you know, several projects on, on the go at once. The, the two the two big ones I've got on the go is a history of um, costume design and costume making, because obviously we have some knowledge about costume designers, um, but we're much less knowledgeable about costume makers. And so I'm really interested in the labour and the craft skills that go into making the costumes that appear on, this, on our screens. Um, and I'm really fascinated by that and really looking forward to working again, you know, with um, uh, the people who make uh, our films and doing interviews. So that's one thing that I'm, I'm working on. The, the other thing is to kind of go back to the oral histories. Uh, and we recorded so much um, information, so many um, fantastic testimonies during the course of the project. And I, um, I'm not finished with them and they are not finished with me, I think, the, the oral history recordings, because what I would like to do is to do more of the workshops that I've done with, with young people using and working with the oral histories and really thinking about questions around women's voices, uh, uh, testimony, what counts as evidence and what exactly is this kind of generational um, conversation that I think we need to have around uh, film filmmaking. So those are the two, two big projects I've got on the go. 